My first experience with an orangutan was in the video game Donkey Kong 64. In the game, you can play as five different Kongs. Now, some of them are classics. Everyone knows the titular Donkey, and you're probably familiar with Diddy as well. Tiny Kong was the younger sister of Dixie Kong, who made some appearances in previous Donkey Kong games. Like her big sis, Tiny used her hair as a helicopter propelling across stages with ease. The game also gave us two new Kongs. Chunky was a big ol' ape with massive strength and absolutely no courage. But I was most intrigued by Lanky Kong, an orangutan wearing a white shirt and blue overalls. Lanky delighted me. He could play trombone, do a handstand, and then walk like that for an entire level, inflate himself like a balloon, and turn into a swordfish. Though they might have a different skill set, it turns out real-life orangutans are just as impressive as Lanky, and today's guest is working to keep them safe. Leif Cox is the founder of the Orangutan Project. He's developed conservation plans for orangutans and influenced positive change for orangutan protection and survival, including the first successful reintroduction of the zoo-born orangutan. Leaf also educates people on the positive impacts orangutans have on our forests and climate change. We're talking about Leaf's first meeting with an orangutan, how he helps give them a second chance at life, and his favorite singer-songwriters. I'm Joey Held, this is Good People, Cool Things, and here's my conversation with Leaf Cox. To kick us off, nice and easy question for you. Can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Cool. Wow. Well, my name's Leif Cox, and um, I've been working with orangutans for over 30 years now, and my elevator pitch is they're self-aware persons, um, and their destruction and murder and driving to extinction is intricately linked um, to our capacity to save our planet as their rainforest home is one of the um, driving destruction of the rainforest home is one of the driving forces for climate change today. Do you remember your first meeting with an orangutan? Yeah, um, it, it was, I, um, I mean, obviously I've, I've, I've seen orangutans and actually my first memory because I was brought up in Asia um, was an orangutan playing with a dog. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I, I started working at, at a zoo and, um, and the orangutan keeper, Charlie, who's been there for, you know, 20 years, retired and they didn't have anyone to look after 15 orangutans. And I had a wonderful opportunity of just saying, well, here's a diet sheet. This is how you move the slides, go look after these orangutans. And, and, of course, and I had really no more training than that. Um, which was actually wonderful because I got to know them as individuals and persons without any preconceived ideas about what an orangutan was. For example, I never uh, assumed that they were dangerous. Um, so I just went in and had my lunch with them and, you know, and had, you know, first-hand contact with them. It was only later that I discovered that other people in zoos saw orangutans as dangerous and, you know, didn't, didn't enter the enclosure. And so I got to know them as individuals. And it found actually within them a more noble form of humanity, uh, which which has started, you know, my um, lifelong um, profession, I guess, is to helping and saving orangutans and all the wonderful auxiliary benefits from that action that occurs for not only them, um, other biodiversity, wildlife, indigenous communities. And as mentioned in my elevator pitch, um, you know, one of the most cost-effective ways we can mitigate climate change. 
Take us from the first time you're working at the zoo. And now, like you said, you've started multiple nonprofits for animal conservation. So what did that journey look like? Was it like as soon as you started working, you're like, okay, I need to I need to do something? Or how did, how did that come together? Well, the first realization is un- to understand that orangutans are persons, just the same as we are, self-aware persons. And as persons, we don't do well in captivity. You know, long-term internment of people, even in, you know, by benevolent people such as refugee camps, which are there to care for people, the long-term internment is, is not good for us and we, we don't survive very well and we have mental issues. And orangutans are in that same boat. Um, then, of course, so they don't belong in captivity, but they've been slaughtered to extinction in the wild. And, and as, you know, having no voice because e- their personhood is not even recognised. Um, so they could be murdered and it's not murder because they're not recognised as sentient persons as, as humans are. And so that set me on my journey. But part of that is I do not believe that um, that any action or, or um, progress without universal love for all living beings um, is going to be effective in the long run. And so I started the International Tiger Project, International Elephant Project, and Frost for People to bring in other living beings under the umbrella of our conservation effort so we can have a holistic approach to saving the last viable ecosystems in the next decade before it's too late and and, and by including all living beings under our, um, our work and intelligent application of compassion um, we should have the longevity and stability um, that we need to make our conservation efforts for orangutans as um, being able to um, be robust enough to survive to future generations. Is there a, a particular, whether it was a, a rescue or rehabilitation or something like that, a particular one that, that stands out to you? I had so many wonderful experiences, you know, with orangutans, um, you know, confiscating them from, you know, illegal, illegally held, you know, um, and then, you know, and then, you know, taking them on the first part of the journey um, back to the wild. Um, but also taking the orangutans I was working with at the zoo and actually then starting taking them back to the wild and starting their journey uh, and reintroducing the first zoo-born orangutans back to the wild and allowing them to be free, as well as being involved in all sorts of levels in many orangutans on their journey to freedom. And, of course, most importantly is, you know, protecting um, wild orangutans ensuring that they can that they can continue to thrive but because they're intelligent persons such as we do they adapt to the environment like we do not solely by natural selection but actually predominantly by culture and so by preserving those wild orangutans and wild orangutan populations we're actually preserving their most valuable asset to survival their unique and beautiful rich culture and societies that they live in so when you're introducing an orangutan that's been in captivity into the wild, is there, I mean, obviously like they've, you know, it, it could be months or years even that they've been in captivity. So is that, is there, I assume probably kind of an acclimation process as they're getting back into it or are they, is it pretty, um, 
you know, pretty quick that they're able to, to kind of get back into that culture. Like anything like that, the, the simple answer is, is usually probably more wrong than right. The answer is they're all individual personalities and they all have individual histories. So some need very little help. Some need a lot of support. Some may never go back to the wild. And so, but to quickly describe those, that the process is, I call them building block. The first builder block is physical health. They're free from diseases and injuries, and so they can operate, you know. Uh, the second building block is mental health. And, you know, and their little minds are often broken from the trauma of seeing their mothers killed and eaten in front of them and often kept in extremely abusive and neglectful situations. So we have to love and provide security for their minds to repair themselves. And then that building block allows social skills to go on top so they can interact and learn to live in the orangutan society, not only for the, the, the mental health benefits of living in the community, but also they can learn off the, each other uh, and, and enrich their um, toolbox of survival skills. And then, of course, the last one on top of that is forest skills learning how to find all the food and, and, and identify all the dangers in the rainforest and to equip them to not to have anywhere near the cultural learning understanding that a wild orangutan has. That's not possible. That has been destroyed by their murder of their mothers and, they, and they're taken away into captivity. But we can at least give them the basic toolbox of skills to start them on the way on the journey to um, living free again in the wild. How are you fighting against deforestation, number one? And then what are some of the other um, sort of obstacles that people might not realize are, are parts of, of getting them back into the wild? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the main game is to, is with securing, at the moment, seven ecosystems, and we're hoping for eight, of the right type, shape, and size of rainforest. Now, the most important thing is um, you have to secure lowland and river rainforest because without that, the orangutans can't survive. So you can create all these national parks in the hills and none of the elephants, tigers and orangutans are going to survive because they need a critical lowland. So you've got to have the right type and shape. Also, rainforest creates its own weather patterns, its own humidity, its own rainfall. Um, and and therefore, you just can't have small patch of the rainforest. Those rainforests will eventually collapse. And it has to be the right shape in a sense because long, thin patch of the forest don't hold much biodiversity. Up to a kilometre into the edge of the rainforest, the biodiversity is, is highly degraded. So we have to intelligently apply to save complete functioning ecosystems. Of, the, of sufficient size, shape, and time. And we've only got next decade to do that, and that's really the, the main game. And within those surviving ecosystems, we can then maintain viable populations of orangutans. However, there's many other orangutans outside of the ecosystems, um, you know, being slaughtered as we speak and starving to death and being killed as agricultural pests. And so we have to have our rescue teams going and rescuing them, um, you know, and rehabilitating and then allowing them to return to the ecosystems that we're protecting. Um, and so, yeah, the, the main game, as I'm, I'm suggesting, is these functioning ecosystems. Um, and, and we only got the next decade to do this because I'm not saying there's not going to be rainforest in 10 years' time, but that rainforest will be so fragmented and small, it will eventually collapse, ecologically collapse. 
And I'm not saying there's not going to be any orangutans in 10 years, but if we don't have enough orangutans of, bio, of um, genetic diversity, those orangutan populations eventually collapse. So I always say to people, we're living in the most important decade in human history. Um, and then that I don't think that's any exaggeration because this will determine whether not we're leaving a better planet for future generations, but at least a recoverable one. And of course, one of the people things that people don't realize these things are intricately linked to climate change, which I mentioned before, in two ways: destruction of the rainforest is causing climate change. The cheapest way of mitigating climate change is the restoration of rainforest. But also what we're seeing more and more is the climate change which is coming now is affecting the rainforest, causing more droughts, higher temperatures, increasing risk of fire. And so there are these feedback loops. So we're intricately connected. We have to save the orangutans, but we also have to save the entire planet into a manageable level. And these, so we're, we're all going to go down with the ship or we're all going to survive. And, and, you know, and orangutans are actually a critical part of it, which could be actually very surprising for people. And so I think the the next logical question is a question you wish you were asked more frequently, which is how can people help? The, the best way to help is is to give. Uh, you know, um, you know, we actually all of us vicariously are living at the profit or the exploitation of others. The industries which supply us our goods and services are passing a true cost of production on the palace, indigenous communities persons such as orangutans and most of all future generations because we're just we're eating into the capacity for future generations to live um, economically affluent lives so because of this we then have a moral obligation and we can't stop all that we can't just not live in a society you know which you know but what we can do at least as individuals is give back so, you know, we give back some of that um, affluence that we vicariously gain from the exploitation of others into meaningful ways of making life better, um, not only for other persons that share our planet, but for future generations. And the orangutan project in our vision to save these complete functioning ecosystems, including the orangutans and the indigenous communities that live there, is just one fantastic way people can um, live a more um even and noble life um and 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 giving back at least as much as what we're taking from this planet can i go back to the impact that orangutans have on climate change um because you said that's something that surprises some people and honestly i was kind of surprised to hear that so what what are some of the ways that they do that well, one of the ways, obviously, protecting the orangutans means protecting the rainforest, and the rainforest is, is as we mentioned, is the lungs of the earth and, and one of the most cost-effective ways of mitigating climate change. But also the rainforest has evolved in conjunction with the orangutans. So the orangutan disperses the seeds, increase the biodiversity. And, in fact, actually, the more biodiverse a, a rainforest has and the more megafauna it has, such as the orangutans and tiger, the more carbon it holds. So low biodiversity forest, that's what you can say the forest, but it's empty, right, contains a, and stores a lot less carbon than rich biodiverse forest that contains orangutans. And so it's actually one of those cheapest things we can do is first to save the rainforest, but if we want to make it a new powerhouse, and you know, increase even further the carbon storage in the rainforest. We want you know the megafauna such as the orangutans to live there, 
and that then that benefits us all. As we're heading into a new year in 2024, what are some of the things that you, you said we're in the most important decade? So how do we start that decade off right? For us, it's a continuation of our journey and our vision. So, um, you know, we're, we're involved with many um, um, formation of many companies which are leasing large tracts of rainforest. Uh, rainforest which should be converted into palm oil plantations, the pot paper plantations um, that we're, we're, we're storing, piecing together functioning ecosystems. Um, and so we should, but also what we're doing is we're working with the indigenous communities to feed, nurture and empower them and develop agricultural systems on the rainforest canopy for not only for them to survive, but prosper. Now, the reason is, is these rainforests haven't been empty of human beings. The rainforests are destroyed. There's human beings in there, but their land rights, you know, to that land has not been recognized. Now, the reason why that can happen is they're uneducated, and the poor, which basically translates into no power. And so our vision is that we're going to educate and make the, the indigenous communities affluent, i.e. they will be have power. And therefore, our vision is once we secure these ecosystems and orangutan populations, that there'll be the, the, the indigenous communities who, the, who their economic affluence will be intricately connected with the rainforest ecosystems will be powerful enough to protect the ecosystems. Um, and in and, and this way, you know, we get maximum bang for a buck, uh, maximum benefit to all living beings, human and non-human, and, um, and leave a legacy um, beyond our lifetimes. Well, I look forward to seeing all of this coming to fruition. In the meantime, you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And, I imagine this might be a little bit of a left turn. We're going with your top three singer-songwriters. Yeah, I mean, well, wonderful singer-songwriters. I mean, you know, bringing beauty into the world is one of the, you know, the greatest things. And to be honest, I got, I, I got, I'm just going to bring three off the top of my head because um, there's so many. I mean, Billy Joel, um, he was the soundtrack to my youth, you know, um, obviously a modern-day genius, Elton John. You know, and his his long term cooperation with his lyricists, which have produced wonderful things. And one from Les Field is a um, he just recently died. Um, a um, an American called Rodriguez, who um, had one of the most wonderful life stories, where um, he spent most of his life working in construction work, not realizing in South Africa he was bigger than the Beatles. And he and um, yeah, and real and only realizing later in life that he was one of the most successful singer songwriters of all time. That's amazing. I I think I remember my dad telling me about him actually. Mm. I because uh, that that being bigger than the Beatles in South Africa sounds very familiar. Mm. To see how people are popular like that, like all you know, all over the world. Like I, <laughs> I, I remember Bill Withers had a has similar story. Mm. I think where he was working as, um, I think, like a toilet cleaner or something like that. And he was in the middle of cleaning a toilet when he found out, like, oh, hey, you have a, <laughs> it's like a platinum record. <laughs> yeah. Which is very cool. I also, if you have not seen uh, the music video for Don't Go Breaking My Heart um, with Elton John and Kiki D. Oh, oh, that that was, yeah, that was when I think I was, um, 
14 at the time when that came out and I, I just thought Kiki D was the most wonderful thing I've ever seen and and um yeah singing with Elton John I just thought it was, it was just yeah marvelous you know um duet and 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 um and the ability for people to to with this with their lyricists and their music to bring such beauty and joy into the world and like you know and that as much as it you know as anything music or conservation or whatever is you know our best role in life is to bring beauty, love, and joy in the world to others. And, and, and music is a wonderful way that people do that. As a music player and listener, mm-hmm. um, fully agree. Again, this is probably a, an oversimplification of things, but when you've played music for orangutans, have you like have you ever seen uh or have you seen any kind of like correlation? Like are they are they all metalheads secretly or, or really into oldies or anything like that? I, I can't really say I've done any sort of, you know, quantitative, you know, research to 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 um to, to determine, you know, what they um what what they like. But they certainly um I, I think they, they respond to it and I, I really think the same as humans, um, you know Young, you know, young uh, adolescent orangutans, you know, they're excited, their hormones are going. So they respond to, you know, the, you know, a, a, a more, you know, energetic sort of music, you know, than um, an old calm orangutan um, tends to um, like more subtle melodies. But in, in general, um, they are much more stable and peaceful animal um, than humans. Um, so my, my intuitive understanding is they probably love the much more um, slow ballads, yeah, and um, yeah, and, and music such as that. Um, unless they're adolescent, you know, the more energetic um, rock and roll. I love it. We're doing great things, Leaf. If people want to learn more about what you've been doing, if they want to give, where can they find you? Um, you can go to our website, the Orangutan Project, all one word. Um, dot org and yeah you can um donate uh, adopt one of the orangutans and follow their journeys back to the wild or do our save for us and you know sponsor a patch of rainforest and watch it on google earth being kept there and the trees being kept there thanks to your your contributions so there's many wonderful ways people can connect and get involved and of course um you know, I've written three books so far about my journey with these beautiful um, persons, orangutans, and people often, um, and all the, there's no author royalties. I don't get any funds. All the money goes straight to the conservation orangutans, and people can, um, yeah, vicariously experience my, my journey um, over the last 30 years. Fantastic. We'll have links to all of those in the show notes as well. For people to give back. Well, Leif, thank you so much. This was very, very educational for me, and I think for a lot of listeners too. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on here. Absolutely. And of course, we got to end with a corny joke. As we always do, what do you call a zombie songwriter? I'm in the songwriter mood too. Ooh, I don't know. A decomposer. <laughs> Good after today, people. <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.